This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Ever wondered how a book gets made into a movie? Or how to master the art of cooking? Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. On our podcast, we're going to be serving you a fresh perspective of the entertainment industry alongside our favorite celebrity guests. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter, at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I'm joined by Andreas M. Antonopoulos, who is basically the uh, the Bitcoin guy for many of us. When many of us were learning about Bitcoin in 2014, 2015, we learned about it from Andreas. Uh, he is a Bitcoin advocate, a tech entrepreneur, and an author of many great books about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the blockchain in general. He is the host of the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast and a teaching fellow at the University of Nicosia. He was kind enough to give me some of his time to discuss Bitcoin in our world in 2020, as well as Ethereum and the role that Bitcoin is going to play in our society going forward. I think that uh, Andreas is a, a brilliant guy. I think this, this was a really interesting discussion, and I hope that all of you guys are going to enjoy it. If you want to get more episodes of the show, you can find them on patreon.com slash takecast. If you just want to support the show, you can leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's very useful and appreciated. And now let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right, everyone, welcoming Andreas into the show. I'm very, very excited to have him on as someone that was very instrumental in, you know, me finding out about Bitcoin a long time ago. Feels feels like an absolute lifetime ago. Wonderful to have Andreas on the show. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm, I'm doing really, really well. Thank you so much uh, for having me on the show, Davis. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. All right. So we are, uh, we are just going to go ahead and get right into it. I think personally that we are at sort of one of these critical junctures in Bitcoin's history. I think that we had this at a similar time frame in 2017, towards the end of the year. I think that we've had a lot of these sort of flashpoints for Bitcoin, you know, over, over the uh, almost 11 years that it has existed now. And, and I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, kind of the short and long-term impacts of the coronavirus on Bitcoin, because one of the things that I have seen from, you know, people that, I'm friends with and I'm casually know who maybe don't uh, do not consider themselves Bitcoiners, maybe don't own a ton of it. Maybe they, they hold some passively, but there, there sort of is this reaction to, you know, just mass inflation everywhere in the world, right? The United States, the European union, everyone is, is printing a lot of money to keep everything afloat during this time of, of tremendous strife. And I, I'm kind of wondering if you think that this is accelerating the growth of Bitcoin adoption. 
I honestly don't think it has much impact on Bitcoin adoption. Um, and one of the challenges we have overall is that um, it's a fourth level effect, if you like. So first level effect is the, the coronavirus. Um, the second level effect is the recession that that is causing. The third level effect is the um, stimulative measures um, and the resulting in income inequality and inflation that that causes. And then maybe, maybe as a fourth level effect in response to all of that, um, people are looking for alternative means of saving um, that uh, are more accessible um, and uh, give them an opportunity to kind of financially advance um, because they've lost confidence in more traditional investments or because they don't have access to more traditional investments or because they're finding that the rest of their economic life is um, appearing very bleak. So it's almost like a Hail Mary play. Um, you know, I obviously... I find it difficult to make first order predictions. Uh, making fourth order predictions is a fool's game. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna not even try. We have seen some signs that um, some people certainly think that is the case, that um, in, in an environment in which um, all assets are kind of in, in bubble territory, even though the fundamentals are incredibly weak and everything's being driven by this incredible amount of stimulus, which is going disproportionately to those who are closest to the sources of capital. All of that creates an environment where it is foolish not to diversify out of that economic environment. But, um, you know, I don't know. And, and the other thing is you asked me about Bitcoin adoption. And I think when people say Bitcoin adoption, they mean a, a variety of different things. Um, many people, when they say Bitcoin adoption, they're thinking, oh, people using Bitcoin as a day-to-day -day currency in, in retail, um, which honestly hasn't really happened anywhere in the world and perhaps um, won't happen until some things change. Uh, then there's Bitcoin adoption as a savings mechanism or Bitcoin adoption as a speculative asset. That has happened. And I don't know if that's going to accelerate or not. Um, I do know that, you know, in some ways this plays against the narrative because the narrative is that Bitcoin is a counter-correlated asset that is, uh, that is a safe haven or a good store of value. But in reality, if the primary adoption is speculative and the reason people have disposable cash to speculate is because of stimulus, then it's not a counter-correlated asset. Then it's one of the, um, everyone's throwing money at anything they might think would work at the same time. And there's so much money sloshing around the system that it's lifting all boats. Um, the problem with that is that that is very unstable. That is not a good foundation. Um, so, you know, I, I think what we're, what we're more likely to see is a period of unprecedented volatility, um, but not just in Bitcoin, across the entire economic environment. It's going to be very difficult to find any safe haven. Maybe Bitcoin is one of them. I don't know that. Um, it's going to be very difficult to find any safe haven because everything is going just completely bonkers.
Yeah. And I, you know, I can't, I can't obviously speak for everyone. I can't speak for all of, uh, of Bitcoin Twitter or anything like that, but you know what I get, the thing that most primarily appeals to me about Bitcoin at relative to, you know, whether it be buying stocks, whether it be, you know, cash in the mattress, money market accounts, whatever, is that the, the, the immutable nature of Bitcoin where you cannot make more simply because you want to, right? That, that is the right. thing to me that I, I believe that's what appeals most to me. And I also believe that right now that is what is appealing most to some of these people who have been disheartened by, you know, their 401ks, gold, whatever it is. I think that, uh, you know, there is something very primal about Bitcoin in the sense of, you know, no one can take it away from you. No one can make more of it so that yours is worth less. And I think, I, I think that that is sort of dovetailing with this mass inflation that we are seeing. And, and, and you know, to right. your point about adoption, yeah, again, you know, are we ever going to be buying cups of coffee with Bitcoin? That's sort of that classic meme. You know, only I think- on lightning. Yeah, only on lightning. I think, I think the answer to that, you know, for, for many, many years is, is probably no. But I, I, I sort of define adoption in my head as people who own Bitcoin and aren't looking to make money over three months or six months, you know, a short term. They, they, they buy the Bitcoin because they, lo- they like the ideology and they understand the ideology and they just yeah. want to have I think I, I honestly think that's a very, very small part of the number of people who are buying Bitcoin. I think a, a lot of people might claim to be in that. Um, it's, it's very difficult to ignore the short-term volatility. And, you know, there, there's this prevailing narrative, I think, that um, the monetary characteristics are sufficient, that that in itself makes this thing robust. I don't think that's true. I don't think that simply scarcity or inelastic supply is, is enough to make something successful. I think it takes a lot of other things, a lot of which are not intrinsic to Bitcoin. They actually have to do with the geopolitics and the environment around it. And, and I think things are going to get unfathomably complex because one of the things that I've predicted um, and I fear is that as long as Bitcoin doesn't really provide a systemic threat to the broader system, as long as it's not big enough to matter, it, well, it doesn't matter. But, but once it becomes important enough and big enough to matter, then it, it unleashes a backlash. It's, it's not simply going to be, you know, and then everybody saw the truth and they switched to Bitcoin as their primary investment. Because then, and then everybody saw the truth and tried to switch to Bitcoin, but the Department of Justice started a massive crackdown operation and it ended up in the Supreme Court for three years and um, all middle-class investors who can't take those kinds of risks fled in fear. Um, or, and then they started throwing people in prison in Russia simply for saying the word. I think that we are entering a period where currency wars themselves are getting much more hot um, and desperate governments uh, behave in extreme ways. So um, I, I, I think that what we're going to see is a much more complex environment than, you know, a simple model might account for. Uh, you, can, you can make a beautiful stock-to-flow model that tells you exactly what's going to happen next. Um, and that doesn't account for, you know, 
um, riot cops and bullets flying. Yeah, I mean, I think that many of these things are obviously very hard to account for. And I think that one of the things that critics of Bitcoin would point to, um, you know, is that in and of itself, the, the intrinsic value maybe doesn't maybe doesn't make it valuable. And that's why people from, you know, almost from the jump with Bitcoin started thinking about ways to improve it, ways that it could be different. And that is, you know, obviously one of the reasons why Ethereum is so valued and why people love Ethereum. I mean, you know, people who love Ethereum, they, they might love Ethereum more than Bitcoin people love Bitcoin. They see, they see so many world-changing applications for it, the, you know, all smart contracts and everything that is involved in Ethereum. I, and when I first discovered crypto, I, I admit to being one of those people that was sort of mystified by Ethereum more than Bitcoin at first and then sort of slowly changed my perspective on that over the years. But one of the things I'm just kind of wondering your personal opinion on is, you know, what, what would your thoughts on, you know, Bitcoin maximalism, it, it, the, the future of world reserve, whatever, relative to what impact can Ethereum have on the world? You know, what, what does Ethereum do that Bitcoin is not capable of? So I, I've expressed this a, a number of times as I think the two systems and, and some other systems too, um, play in completely different domains. They address completely different use cases. And I think far too many people on both the Bitcoin and the Ethereum side behave as if um, they can simply dominate the entire environment without any differentiation. Um, for every person who says Bitcoin can do everything, including smart contracts, uh, there's a person on the Ethereum side who says, and Bitcoin can also do sound money. Um, I don't think either of those things is true. And I, I don't think we want them to be true. Uh, I think the jack of all trades, master of none concept applies here. Uh, you, you have to make some difficult choices when you're using a system like this and um, specialization is something that is going to need to happen. Um, and I, I do think there's value beyond simply the monetary. And I think it's naive to assume that just because um, there isn't a very good monetary policy, there's no value there or vice versa, just because there is a, a good monetary policy, that's all you need. I, I think we're operating in a, in a vastly more complex environment. So most of the comparisons and discussions I see are rather simplistic and they dismiss one of the fundamental aspects of this, which is that it's not just a technology. It's a technology that operates in the marketplace with human beings who are emotional and, um, and, and there are no um, clinically rational uh, actors who can can completely detach from an emotional appeal of something and, and make hard-nosed decisions uh, on the right time scale at the right time that doesn't exist so uh, I, I I think it's it's simply a, a much more gray area than people want to and then the people want to acknowledge and, and that's okay um, I'm comfortable with uncertainty uh, I see the world as a, as a fairly chaotic place with randomness um, dominating outcomes. And, um, and I, I, I think it's a, a bit silly that we think we can kind of sculpt the future to our desire 
uh, and ignore the fact that the universe will laugh at those plans. Um, coronavirus is a perfect example of that. So the, the, everything changed and, and it will again and again and again. Um, so to, to look at this simply as a, as a comparison on a purely technical perspective or purely monetary perspective between two systems as if the rest of the world doesn't exist, as if geopolitics doesn't exist, as if human psychology and behavior, um, brand affinity and all of these other things don't exist is, is, is a very useful um, it doesn't give you good answers. It doesn't give you good predictive outcomes. So I'd rather um, simply take a step back and not dismiss things out of hand, um, account for the possibility that I will be surprised, that I will be wrong, um, and see how it plays out and, and take a more long-term perspective. In the meantime, if, if you're interested in one of these systems, I think um, you can do a lot more good by focusing on improving the things that don't quite work well in the system you're interested in than trying to poke holes in other people's approach. Um, because they may see something or they may have a use case or they may have a perspective that you don't have. And if you're so busy uh, trying to poke holes in their argument, um, you may be missing some blind spots in your own. Um, if you really, really think uh, Bitcoin is the system to rule all systems, then you know work towards yeah, go for it. making it better. And if you really think Ethereum is, is that make work towards making it better? And if you think there's room for more than one, then build bridges. <laughs> you know, build um, gateways between them. And I, I'm I'm more of that third category. I I think there is room for more than one system, I think there will be a degree of specialization. I think these systems will not simply disappear even if they have flaws. Um, and that it's worth building gateways, that it's worth building bridges, that it's worth examining different perspectives um, and uh, focusing on the work and, and not the bickering. Yeah, and I, I think one of the points you made there is relatively large in this space, which is the, you know the geopolitical concerns as it relates to cryptocurrency. You know, obviously, um, you know governments feel a little bit uncomfortable when there's where's, there's all this money going around. You know, we had the the, the one point one billion dollar transaction on the blockchain the other day, and you know those are the sorts of things that make governments feel you know a little a little sweaty, right? A little nervous, and you know, as someone who does love love Bitcoin, I think that I can acknowledge that. Ethereum is the far more governmental friendly, far more, obviously it is, it is, it's centralized. It, it, that is sort of the, that is sort of the point is that developers are able to make a lot of executive decisions. They, you know, and they're, they're generally speaking gets to be a, a ruling body as it pertains. And, and for that reason, you know, I, I think that Ethereum has a very bright future because I, I see all sorts of, you know, beautiful applications for Ethereum that uh, is not going to make anyone with a lot of governmental power angry. For now, yes. Um, sure. yeah. Although I think some of the more interesting um, applications in the Ethereum space also have to do with uh, the domain of unstoppable code. I, I think without that, there it's not that interesting. The overheads you have to pay in terms of operating on an immutable blockchain are pretty high. And so if you don't need unstoppable codes, then 
um, I don't see much point to suffering those overheads. And if you do need unstoppable code, then one, it, it had better be unstoppable, truly unstoppable. And two, the reason it's unstoppable is because someone is trying to stop it. Um, so it's doing something that is pissing somebody off. Um, and, you know, maybe Ethereum isn't ready for that yet. Uh, I hope it becomes even more robust in the future. But um, it's, it's also very difficult to, to predict how it's going to um, evolve in that direction and how robust it, it might become. You, you can't really judge those things in advance. And it's, it's one of the things that people don't understand, I think, fundamentally about Bitcoin. Bitcoin has a lot of these overheads, um, these rather cumbersome design choices that are designed to make it extremely robust. It's a tank of a cryptocurrency. And, you know, driving it back and forth to Walmart uh, seems like a very not sensible thing. You're like, why are you carrying three tons of armor to go to your neighborhood um, Walmart? Um, and that's because you're expecting incoming artillery anytime soon. But without that, uh, it seems like a not sensible choice. So uh, these are some of the features of these systems, these robust features that you don't really see the value for until something bad happens. And then you're like, oh, right. Now I see why that was necessary. And, and of course, a lot of people will argue, listen, you're, you're wasting all of this dead weight uh, on all of this armor that's not necessary. No one's shooting at us. Um, and and you, you, won't, you won't know who's right. Um, maybe, maybe it's never necessary, but maybe it, it becomes necessary. And I would like to see like different approaches where there's different levels of robustness and paranoia for different environments, because maybe you get smooth sailing and then you can pretend you were a great sailor the entire time, or maybe you end up in a storm. And at that point, you really have to demonstrate that you're a good sailor because everything that happened before was just, you know, it was all prologue. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so the, these are the things that, that add gray areas. And based on the unstated assumptions you have about how things are going to play out in the future, you can make some very strong uh, points and you can express some very strong opinions and certainty about where we're going. You can say, listen, we absolutely need a very, very robust system because I anticipate this is going to happen. Or you don't even say that you anticipate that something bad is going to happen. That's your unstated assumption. And other people are like, why is this, why is this person taking this extreme position? Um, those unstated assumptions are, I think, at the core of many of these disagreements. People are unable to see eye to eye because they're not stating these assumptions and they can't see the assumptions that other people are making about how things are going to play out. Um, and, and, and you can't predict who's going to be right. So it's, it's better to just, you know, stop arguing about these things and just let people try to do what they want to do. Yeah, I, I, think, that, I think that makes sense. So one of, the, one of the, to me, the most surprising developments of 2020, you know, been, been a year of many surprises of, of down when you thought up, up when you thought down, has been this corporate adoption of Bitcoin, right? We have uh, MicroStrategy and Square buying, you know, billions of dollars of Bitcoin. Uh, the way that MicroStrategy bought it, very just a very brilliant trade of like buying, you know, many many small uh, transactions at you know almost the exact same time, which I thought was 
just if you guys haven't heard of it, it's an interesting thing to go Google and, and read about after you're done listening here. And we have, you know, we have uh, the big banks, right? We have JP Morgan Bank and some of the other large ones, you know, saying they're starting to think about it. Um, it's just, I, it's shocking to me to hear, uh, you know, from something that started as like a, a big anti-corporation, you know, a, a cypherpunk movement to, to have it be a part of this, this corporate infrastructure is, is very surprising to me. And, you know, I, I guess the, my question would just be, what, what does this do to Bitcoin? Does this, just, does this make it, you know, again, just an instrument of the people who already have all the power in the world? You know, like, does this, does this cheapen the, you know, the quote unquote movement? Does it, or, or is it just, again, Bitcoin is sort of a Rorschach in the sense of it is, it is one thing, but many, many different groups of people make it all sorts of different things. I, I think it's a bit more of a Rorschach. Um, and, and we won't know. And we won't know what the impact of these things are until push comes to shove. You know, right now, the two perspectives can coexist quite comfortably. Um, and then, you know, a year from now, um, uh, the core developers um, propose a feature for confidential transactions that hide the um, payment amounts and break the possibility of KYC or AML regulations on the core chain and make it much harder for big exchanges and other companies like that um, to comply successfully and, and, and keep this thing listed or use this thing in their treasuries. Then what? Now, push comes to shove, they're going to have to make some decisions. And a lot of corporations are, are going to resist changes that make Bitcoin more private, um, more robust against interference, more robust against censorship and regulation. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that they're going to cheerlead changes that are the exact opposite, that weaken privacy, mm -hmm. that attempt to attach identity at the protocol level, that... Um, try to make the travel rule, which is a, a regulation about identifying senders and recipients, make that part of the protocol. Now, if they do that, um, then they're going to get resistance from the developers and the other users. And that's going to put these two seemingly aligned sets of interests at odds. And then we're going to see whether you can buy consensus at scale, whether you can buy a change in the protocol at scale or prevent a change of protocol that's wanted by many just because you have more money at stake, um, which is going to be interesting. I think it's going to be, it, we are going to have battles like that, just like we did in 2017. Now, in 2017, some very, very rich people did try to um, force a change of consensus that would make their business models easier. Um, and they failed and it cost them quite a lot of money. And Bitcoin ended up kind of sticking more to the status quo because there wasn't enough consensus to change it. Every time one of these big corporations becomes a giant stakeholder, um, they are then able to mobilize that money. Now, Bitcoin isn't a proof of stake system directly, uh, but of course having a lot of money um, and how you configure the nodes that are, um, injecting transactions into the network that ha that carry a lot of money uh, does give you power. So let's take the example you just mentioned. Uh, last week, there was a 
$1.1 billion transaction, a single transaction for, I think it was like 88,000 or 98,000 Bitcoin. Um, now, let's say you have a potential fork situation and that fork situation is such that there will be two sides, um, one side that implements a set of rules, the other side that doesn't. So if you're about to make that transaction, you have the choice to make that transaction only on one side of the fork and not on the other, then that will influence which fork becomes successful. Um, and vice versa. Uh, if the exchange, that, if you say wanted to cash that money out and take it to an exchange, the exchange has clout simply by the fact of which fork they pick and whether that fork contains your 98,000 Bitcoin transaction or not. So even though Bitcoin isn't a proof of stake system, economic incentives matter and the economically important nodes matter and their choices matter. So when you have ETFs and when you have um, hedge funds and when you have large corporate treasuries that own a lot of Bitcoin, um, the choices they make on the protocol have an outsized effect. And I, I think we're, we are going to see some tension develop in the future between the, the more purist approach. But that's okay because, you know, one of the interesting things is that this now has opened the door for uh, a forest of other cryptocurrencies, which means that, and, and this is important, I, I want to say this carefully. I don't think Bitcoin is going to get hijacked so easily by big interests but it is absolutely possible. History tells mm -hmm. us that every system of power eventually becomes corrupted and hijacked. And you know, from a political perspective, I've always been a disruptarian. I believe in continuous disruption, uh, the idea that you have to keep shaking things up because as they become captured and corrupted, you have to throw a spanner in the works and change things up so that you keep refreshing more independent, more decentralized systems. Um, Bitcoin is disrupting a banking system um, that at one point in time, four or 500 years ago, was a great equalizer and disruptor itself. Uh, and then yeah. it became centralized and corrupt. Uh, there's, no, there's no reason to believe that Bitcoin itself won't eventually become centralized and corrupt and that it won't need another thing to come and disrupt it. Now, the good news is, that it has given us both a recipe and a demonstration that it is possible to implement such disruption as a network protocol. So Bitcoin will be disrupted by something that um, will, will come along that will be based on very similar technologies. And it is possible to do again and again and again. So if you think about Bitcoin simply as a single system or a single currency, then yes, it can be compromised. But if you think of Bitcoin as a pattern of decentralized uh, economic incentives, trust, and uh, collaboration, that pattern will keep surviving and evolving, um, and it, it will end up disrupting itself. There we go. I couldn't, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, Andres, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, can, you, can you direct people to your website, your Patreon, and uh, you know, if, they, if they're mind has been turned on and they want to learn more about Bitcoin, tell them how to do that. Sure. Um, you can find me online as A Antonop, A-A-N-T-O-N-O-P, um, which is my uh, username on Twitter. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my channel name on YouTube, 
and my website dayantonov.com. Um, right now, we've actually got a, a, a nice um, introductory course, which is really for beginners. Um, I think everybody can learn a bit out of it, but it's really, really best for beginners. The Introduction to Bitcoin and Open Blockchains, which is a free course, a workshop that I have on my website. And people can find that at antonup.com slash workshops. And um, it's, uh, it's doing quite well. People are enjoying learning something. And, you know, I, I always believe the, the best antidote to cynicism and drama and chaos is education. Um, and so if the news is getting you down, if you're not sure if this is the right thing or the wrong thing, if you're worried about the state of the world, learn something and you'll immediately feel better. So <laughs> um, here's something you can learn and it's free. Beautiful. Build digital first customer relationships with Salesforce Digital 360. Connect every marketing, commerce, and digital experience on a single platform. Innovate fast with easy to launch sites, campaigns, and apps. That's more relationships, more revenue, more return, and more success. Salesforce Digital 360. Hear from our customers at sfdc.co slash digital 360.